0: I wanted to go work for Zanger Miller, this management training company. And because he didn't want me to come work there, he wanted me to go get some management experience. I took my second best option, which was working for this little maverick unknown software company. And I think all of my friends out of physical thought I had like taken a loser job. Uh, they're like, what do they do? Do they like make toothbrush supplies or Oracle? And <laughs> And so I just landed in this amazing place.
1: Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Cheryl Sandberg, and it is, leadership is about making others better as a result of your presence and making sure that impact lasts in your absence. Our guest today, Liz Wiseman, coaches some of the world's top leaders on how to help others improve. She's the CEO of Wiseman Group, a leadership, research, and development firm with clients such as Apple, Disney, Facebook, and Google. She's a frequent guest lecturer at BYU and Stanford, has been recognized by Thinkers 50 as the top leader thinker in the world. And she's also the author of several New York Times bestselling books, including Multipliers, The Multiplier Effect, and Rookie Smarts. Liz, welcome. Excited to have you join the Elevate podcast.
0: Oh, well, I'm happy to be here. And I love that opening idea.
1: Yeah, it's a great quote. I've heard it misattributed uh, in a lot of different places. But after some research, I'm pretty sure it (laughs) it came from uh, Sheryl Sandberg.
0: Well, and you know, it's funny early on um, in my research, I was doing the research for multipliers and someone told me, they said, really, you should look at this leader. Her name is Cheryl Sandberg. You know, she's still fairly unknown. And people said, you know, the way she leads, it's like she gives you a kick in the ass and yeah. then a hug. <laughs> like that's how she just like brings out the best in people. So I really appreciated that.
1: That sounds like the Kim Scott, Cheryl uh, Sandberg story, <laughs> almost mm-hmm. a famous story. So You now lead your own uh, leadership organization, but uh, I know before that you spent much of your early career at Oracle. Is that where you started or how did you kind of get started in the management leadership world?
0: Well, you know, I I joined Oracle out of college and I came, it was out of graduate school and I came out of a business program. And I, you know, Oracle was my consolation prize. It was not the job I wanted. Like it was a dream job. You know, if you started at Oracle back in the late 80s, it was a sweet gig you know the company was growing it was full of all these smart people doing all these impossible things but it was not the job I wanted I wanted to I wanted to go teach management and I actually went to what was then the premier management training company they were called Zenger Miller and uh, they were based in the Bay Area and of Northern California. And I go to them and I kind of like, somehow I get an interview with the president and I announce myself like, hi, I'm here to work for you. And I want to teach management. And Ed White was the president. I just can only imagine what he's thinking on the other end of the phone.
1: When you're 22. Yeah, yeah. You
0: know, right no. out <laughs> of... of Business school. And it was like over the phone, he gave me a pat on the head, like I was a little girl, you know. And he was just like, Liz, you seem great. But if you want to teach management, if you want to teach leadership, you should probably go get some experience managing. (laughs) Like it had never occurred to me to go do this. So, like, I wanted to go work for Zanger Miller, this management training company. And because he didn't want me to come work there, he wanted me to go get some management experience. I took my second best option, which was working for this little maverick unknown software company. And I think all of my friends out of physical thought I had like taken a loser job. Uh, they're like, what do they do? Do they like make toothbrush, you know, <laughs> supplies or Oracle? And, and so I just landed in this amazing place. Like I said, amazing people, rapid growth, Sky's the limit.
1: So, just to put this in, I mean, people know math. Like, how big was Oracle at that time?
0: I think there was about two thousand employees. You know, so it was a teenager. It wasn't um, a startup. It had already gone public, and honestly, I can't remember the revenues. But it was young. It was about two thousand people around the world, and you knew all the people in the company.
1: I remember reading, there's some great origin story stuff. I think it was a a book about Larry Ellison. It was called, What's the Difference Between God and Larry Ellison? Oh, yeah. And I think it said, God doesn't think he's Larry Ellison. And look, there are worse ways to build a business. It was very customer-centric. He would go around to people. He would ask them what their problems were. Uh, They would tell him what their problems were. He would say that Oracle solved that. And then he would go back to the engineers and tell them to add that feature by tomorrow. Uh, which is uh, <laughs> the customer centric approach to business.
0: Well, and it was. And see, there was this ruse going on at Oracle. And, you know, there was the technology was a little suspicious in early days because, you know, Larry would get out ahead of himself. But the big <laughs> yeah. ruse of Oracle was it was a new industry, relational database management was really new. So they couldn't hire people with experience. So Larry and the CFO at the time, Jeff Walker, They came up with this strategy of, okay, let's go hire people right out of college who don't know anything. And then let's basically exploit the fact that they don't know anything. It was like, if you've read The Phantom Tollbooth, that book, uh, you know, it's all about how things seem impossible. Uh, But if you don't know they're impossible, they aren't. So, and they, they looked for this trifecta of talent. It was, they hired people who had this just kind of raw intelligent, almost like a freaky smart person. People who then, the second quality was achievement orientation. So they looked for people who were like freaky driven. And then the third quality was nice. Like, you know, people you would want to have lunch with and they barely compromised on the first two, but sometimes they would compromise on that, that third piece of, of nice. So it was this like sea of all these young, inexperienced, kind of smart driven people. And then they would just Hand them these use cases, these scenarios that no one else would have touched. But these young, like smart kids, were like, "Oh, okay, I'll do that." And um, it was kind of a fun place to work because I just felt, you know, some people would get imposter syndrome in that. I I just felt like I was lucky to be there. I'm like, I'm clearly not the smartest person here, but what a fun group of people to work around and got thrown into management. And it, it was just, it was a thrilling experience. I still miss it to this day. I love the work I do, love the impact that it has. But man, I miss those early days at Oracle.
1: Yeah. You talk to people who are at these companies in those stages. It's kind of like being at a band in its prime. It's a very hard thing to to sort of recreate. Well, I mean, Oracle is a household name today, uh, at least you know in the business world, maybe not in the consumer world. But you were heavily involved with oracle university which i'm sure not as many people know about so can you talk a little bit about what, what that is how it got started and what your role in in running it was
0: well it was a corporate university and you know i think at some point larry decided he wanted a corporate university and i don't know if it was because <laughs> you know and mcdonald's had a university and you know microsoft and oracle went public um, just like within days of each other and my guess is that Microsoft probably had the beginnings of a corporate university and Larry kind of wanted to beat them to this, but it got decided that we needed this corporate university and I.
1: Tomorrow, right?
0: Yeah. And I, I got put in charge of it. You know, um, we were a small like department that did new hire training and it was like, okay, Larry wants a university and Liz, you're now in charge and go build that.
1: So you are the Dean.
0: Yeah, and I I remember this very, very well because I was probably 25 years old at the time. Wow. I'm a year and a half out of college. And I'm dumb enough to have said yes, but I wasn't so dumb and naive that I wasn't aware that something was wrong. (laughs) Like, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a kid. And you want me to go create a university? Like, this is a grown-up job. Are we lacking grown-ups here? And and I was just shocked that they were entrusting me with this responsibility. And honestly, the only qualification I had for this is that I had recently been at a university. And I guess I thought, well, she must understand learning because she was recently there. And so I got to go start this thing up, and it was just comical. I I remember the the job of the university was really technical readiness you know we were innovators new in this database market and you know people didn't know a lot about relational database management systems so like job number 1 was to make sure that when oracle had a new product that our entire workforce was ready to go like we were ready to sell it support it to install it, to um, customize it, to do performance management for customers. So, it started out as really technology enablement and readiness, and then it was professional skills and then management training. We just sort of built this out till we had really a full-scale global operation.
1: And I know maybe it's because of Microsoft. and but well, what was his mandate? Like, what did he want to see? was it to build future leaders at Oracle, or was it to, you know, what was the what was the stated mandate for the university?
0: You know, it was always around technology readiness. And in fact, I learned one of my big career lessons this way. And, you know, I, I joined this group, and I had been at the company for maybe a year and a half, and all these young people were getting, thrown into management. And I was about to be one of them. But, you know, they're all getting thrown into management. And, you know, I've actually studied like the whole rookie state and what happens when people are new to something. And there's amazing things that happen when you're given hard things and you're new. One of the cases where it doesn't prove true is management. Like new managers are disasters. Uh, you know, it usually takes about six months for people to figure out, Hey, by the way, it's not about you anymore. So anyway, we had all these young people being thrown into management and they were not getting any kind of management training. So I had been at the company about a year. There had been a reorganization. I had lost my job in this reorganization. I was now looking for a new job. Now this wasn't, um, like a difficult job search. The company was growing and I had done well. So I had a number of opportunities to choose from. And one of them was to go work for this new hire group that was about to like turn into Oracle University. And I interview with my would be boss, the director. And then I go to interview with the vice president of administration. And his name is Bob Shaver. And I'm talking to him about what I think I can do for Oracle. And I make this observation that the company's growing fast, a lot of managers who have had no training. And hey, I can put together a management training program. Now, Robert, remember what I wanted for my first job. Like, I yeah, wanted.
1: This is all coming together for you. Yeah,
0: and I'm smelling this opportunity of, like, this is my chance to go and do this. I don't know why I wanted to do it so much. It's really the work I do today, but I, somehow early on, I had this, like, homing device, like some homing page, which is like, get yourself. To this kind of work, and so right. I make this case that hey, I can do this for this company, and it's needed. And Bob said to me, he said, "You know, Liz, that's great, and we are so excited for you to join this group." And he said, "But that's not the problem that we have right now." He said, "We have a very different problem. In fact, your manager has a different problem. She's got to figure out how to get about two thousand new hires." into this company and up to speed on Oracle technology really fast. Hmm. And he said, it'd be great if you could help us with that. And, you know, of course, my dreams are (laughs) dashed once again,
1: Not, not as fun, but necessary. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so what I was passionate about, nobody cared about, like it was a known problem, but it was one that people were willing to have sort of sit as an ambient problem.
1: Right. And well, it's a tech company, so, right. It's a
0: tech company, and it's like, what we care about is technology. Now, I didn't necessarily care deeply about the technology, but I was smart enough to figure out that if that's the problem, then I should go and solve that problem. And, you know, he never said it to me directly, but Robert, essentially what he was saying to me is, you know what, Liz, why don't you make yourself useful? <laughs> why don't you go do something that we actually need? And then that would be valuable. And so I gave up my desire, my passion to want to go and like help people be good managers. And I went and learned how to teach programming to programmers. So Oracle wasn't just hiring like smart, driven people.
1: How did you learn that? (laughs)
0: Like this, this is a mystery of my life that I'm still not entirely sure how this happened. But so I said, yeah, you know, I'll go do that. And I signed up to go teach the basics of the Oracle technology stack, which was like three GL languages. So like procedural SQL language and, and how you create apps, you know, how you create forms and reports. And so I signed up to do that, to teach that in our new hire training. And so we're hiring people with bachelor's and master's and PhDs out of schools like, you know, Caltech, MIT, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford. So, all of these people coming in with CES and engineering degrees. And I, who's coming out of business school,
1: right.
0: am now one of the two technical trainers on staff. And so I just hit the books and I just ordered all the documentation, figured it out. And then my smartest thing I did was sign up to teach with a woman named Leslie Stern, who was a proper technologist. Like, she was a true technologist. And she's like, Liz come on. I remember, she's like, we got to teach you to think like a programmer. So you don't think like a programmer. See, and, and she taught me like the way of an engineer. And she's like, you start, because we we're teaching on alpha code as well, because, you know, the way you polished your software was you had your new hires build Systems with it and find bugs. Like they were like a great source for finding bugs. And so we were teaching on this really unstable software. And, and she's like, You find things that are wrong and you go in and you change four things. And she says, No, here's how a programmer works you change one, you isolate a problem, you make one change, you recompile your code, you test it. And if it works, you then make the second change. I'm like, Well, I already know that the second change needs to be made. That's not how a programmer thinks. And she like learned me how to think like a programmer. And uh, that is a skill that I still use today very much as a researcher. Like how do you isolate variables and test and figure out where's like, what does cause and effect actually look like? And, and so this job really helped me to do that.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. to post your job for free, terms and conditions apply. Well, we'll get to your research uh, process now. I, now I can see sort of where where it evolved from. But I assume you had a pretty interesting look at you know the company growing that well at sort of early standout leadership at Oracle. And I'm curious. So what what was it that you observed from behaviors of some of Oracle's best thinkers or best leaders? I guess I should say.
0: Well, for one, I just, I was raised in this upside culture, like leaders who saw possibilities and who just asked people to do hard things. And I think that's one of the things that first struck me was what happens when a leader trusts somebody who hasn't necessarily done something before, gives them a job to do, and then doesn't come back and do it for them.
1: Right. Right. So the, the opposite of helicopter parenting.
0: Oh, the exact opposite. And there was one in particular. Um, Oracle had a president for a number of years uh, whose name is Ray Lane. And I worked very closely with him throughout my, my time there. And, and in some ways, I was kind of chief of staff to him. But um, I worked very closely with Ray. And one of the things that struck me is that he asked me to do hard things and then never took pity on me. And I noticed he did that with everyone. And at one point, when I, it was when I was later writing a book, I went back and asked him like, Ray, why did, why did you never step in and do things for people even when they were failing at it? He's like, Liz, you know the answer to that. Nobody knows me better than you. And I'm like, no, I really want to hear this from you.
1: <laughs> I want your words, yeah. Yeah,
0: I want to understand this. And, and he said, well, if I stepped in and did it, you know, this is someone who ran a, a $30 billion revenue operation. He said, "If I stepped in and did something for someone, then that would be a failure of leadership." Mm. And I just thought that was so interesting. And like, I think that was one thing I noticed is growing up in this culture that was so focused on growth and just letting people do hard things and not doing it for them. And just like, there were a few disasters that came out of that for certain. There was a couple wobbly points in Oracle's history. There was a point where the company almost fell apart, I think back in 1989. But amazing things happen when you create this like vacuum and you allow people to just step in and do something that they never would have ever in any reasonable situation. To do. I can't give like my whole career, I was given jobs I had no idea how to do. I'm like, this is irresponsible.
1: Right. And yeah, it strikes me, because we have a we have a generation coming to the workforce now where again their their parenting has almost been the opposite of this. Like, let's remove obstacle. And I think we're seeing the struggles of that. And you know, just as you're telling that story, I thought of Steve Jobs and his biography. now Steve was pretty brutal on people, but they all said that he got me or enabled me or whatever to do things that I never possibly thought that I could do by just creating the the expectation and sort of holding the the accountability to it and and I worry that's a little bit of a, a lost art.
0: Well I think so and you know one of the things I see today that is very much um, colored by my own experience at Oracle. Is I see that so many leaders are good leaders, but they're not great leaders because they haven't learned how to let other people
1: suffer. Yeah,
0: like they're un- you know—they they jump in, they rescue too quickly, and they're they maybe um, have misinterpreted some of like the new rules of management, which are about enablement and trust and empowerment. Like they do that part of the job. But then they don't have that hard edge, and you know it was interesting when um, we'll, we'll probably get to it at some point. But when I had written this book, Multipliers, one of the things that I was surprised is I was surprised how surprised my publisher was about these kinds of leaders because she's like, wow, these these are these are not cupcakes and kisses leaders. Like she could see this hard edge as like what i found that these the best leaders do is they create this environment like they create a great environment for people to work people feel trusted supported empowered all these kinds of things but that's where a lot of leaders stop short but what the best leaders do is they ask people to do hard things they challenge they hold people accountable
1: i think there's an interesting lens on this like with certain styles of parenting or mentorship, you may not love it at the time, but it takes a ten-year lens to look back and be like, "I did my best work under under that person." I this also makes me think. I just watched we did a book group during quarantine with my son and his friends, and and we read and watched the the story Miracle. I didn't know much about Herb Brooks as a coach and all this stuff, but he was tough on these guys. <laughs> you know, he, they didn't love him at the time, but they all loved him 10 or 20 years later and said that he got more out of them than any coach they'd ever had in their career.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and it's not a popularity contest. Um, I joke with my kids that I'm like, you know what? It's a good thing mom was popular in high school. (laughs)
1: That's a good line. I might steal that.
0: <laughs> You're welcome to it. Anyone's welcome to it. And and I'm like, I wasn't popular in high school. I was a cheerleader. I was this. I was that. You know what? And I'm over it. Like, I already had my chance to be popular because I feel no pressure to be popular
1: as your mom. And there is, you know, you said something else that resonated with me because I think for any growing organization that's constantly creating new leaders, which is a great thing, they're going to struggle as new leaders. It's one thing if you've been in it for doing it for ten years and you're not good at it, but if you're if you're in your first three to six months, like you're I'm bad. not sure how good you're expected to be. And we we've communicated this to people. Say so, we you know we, we're we're focused on this. We're focused on the training, but you're excited about this opportunity. But when you get there, you're not necessarily great at it right away. And that's where the organization has to train. But I will say, it, it, it does take pain. And the two areas where where i have consistently seen it's almost like everyone has a name so the person that they cut corners hiring on that sort of you know was their nightmare and then the person they gave five chances to and as much as we've trained leaders on this we've talked about it i've seen in our organization everyone has to have like they need to have their their Liz, or their that's a bad example, or their their Steve, or their Shelly or the one that just finally made them realize like I am not going to do that again. There are a couple of people on our our team I can tell you the name uh, of the person that sort of got them to up their game in that in that capacity. But I I'm not sure it really sinks in until you go through that. I, the thing that new managers uh, seem to really struggle at the most is taking early corrective performance action. And they're coached; they're told, "Hey, look, all of our data says you can give this person a fourth try, but probably not going to work." And they they do it, and it blows up in their face. And then eventually, they learn from it. So I, it's interesting because I, I we've talked about that. But and then the organization, like, how much pain do you let people? have before it causes you know more systematic damage.
0: You know, what you're saying, Robert, reminds me of um, a leader I met at Microsoft, someone I admire a lot. His name is Lutz Ziab. And I was struck by something. Um, and not just one person on his team said I was doing some research and I interviewed everyone on his management team. They all said some version of this. They said, oh, around Lutz, you can make any mistake you want once. <laughs> You know, and, and this to me captures this combination of having this like soft touch, which is compassionate, enabling, giving people um, space, you know, psychological safety, all of that, like to experiment, to try to make mistakes. But you know what? You don't go backwards in your learning process. Like you right. learn, you made that mistake. Now, I expect you not to make it again, meaning, hey, if you tried a risky promotion and it was disastrous, no, you don't get to try the same kind of risky promotion. Like learn and move forward. And it's this compassionate, but demanding, and challenging way of leading. And I think that was one of the first things that I really, like, I landed great in this job at Oracle, because it was, um, you know, there's a lot of rough moments, and it was hard. And, And, you know, some people are like, wow, Lish, you work at Oracle, like, you seem like a really Nice person. Like, I hear they eat their young there. And, you know, like, I hear Larry Allison is like a tyrant. And I'm like, oh, Larry, wow, he's nothing. You should meet my dad. (laughs) Like, you know, I grew up with a really, like, tough father. I was like, wow, Larry is nice. But, but it was this, it was this wonderful environment where you're just given opportunities. And it was this wonderful. Like non-hierarchical environment. And I think it was one of the things I also learned at a pretty early age is like don't get sucked into titles and org structures. it was it was as much of a meritocracy as I've ever worked. And you kind of worked with whoever you needed to to get your job done. And, you know, I remember early on, like we needed Larry on something, and I just was like, asked him, Larry, would you come and, talk to this group about this. And he did. And, and like years later, you know, I had been working very closely with Oracle's president and he hired a, like a chief of staff. And this guy, his name was Mike, kind of sat me down and knew that I worked very closely with the president. And this is when I'm running the university. I'm running a lot of the global talent enablement, global communications, global strategy, a bunch of stuff. And, um, and Mike sat me down and explained, Mike had come from the military, how like the system would work and how if I wanted to meet with Ray, I would kind of like submit my request. And he's kind of talking about this whole process. And Mike is probably 20 years my senior at this point. Yeah. And I'm listening to him and he gets done explaining how this hierarchy is going to work and how he's going to put like order to all this chaos. And... I'm like, well, Mike, I respect that, but I just need to let you know I have no intention of doing that. And he's like, what? And I'm like, no, Like, I'm going to work with whoever I need to to get my job done. And if I need this person or that person, I'm just going to go to them and bring them into this. So no, I'm not going to, like, basically, I'm not going to play that game. And I, I just remember his face. He was like, what? You don't get to say that. And I'm like, Yeah, I do. Like, and and it was one of the wonderful things is, and it wasn't like you took advantage of that. You didn't go bother people who were busy, but um, yeah, like you just took charge and did whatever it took to get a job done at all levels. And you kind of treated people at all levels the same way.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a good mandate. Get the job done. So we hinted at this and i know i know you're very research driven um and it sounds like some of that was formed by having to figure this stuff out working in a
0: database company yeah it's a yeah. data
1: company data company on things that you didn't know how to do so you researched them but um what inspired uh, the research that led to your first book multipliers
0: well you know it's funny that book was written like almost 20 years after i joined oracle but it was my early experience where i landed in this see of all these brilliant people. And probably because I was thrown into management young, like I was 25 when they're like, you're now in charge of training, go build Oracle University. And I didn't know what I was doing. I I watched at what other leaders were doing. And I suddenly was, you know, I had a big job in the company now. So I was working with all these executives and I was just struck by, they were all brilliant, but not all of them created brilliant teams around them. I was like, wow, this guy is brilliant, but nobody else gets to be smart around him. Like when he walks in the room, everybody shuts up. And I was so fascinated because I could see how people changed around different leaders. Like I'd pick a colleague, let's call my colleague Brian. So, you know, Brian was smart and capable. I knew Brian to be smart and capable. And I would see him around one leader and he would be like a shell of himself. I'm like, why is he holding back? Why is he not bringing this issue up? Why did he fold so quickly on that? When I know actually he feels more strongly about this, but then I would watch Brian around a different leader, and Brian is smart and funny and um, at ease and like gets things done. And I just was struck, like, why are we so smart and capable around some leaders, but we hold back around others? And I just thought this was kind of curious and. I just watched it and then thought not much of it until I left Oracle and I started doing executive coaching here in Silicon Valley. And I found myself coaching other executives who were brilliant. And, you know, Silicon Valley has a way of attracting these kind of like Mensa level types and then giving them free reign and a lot of them wreak havoc. (sighs) And there was one particular executive I was coaching and, you know, had a pedigree education and he was struggling because people around him were holding back. And so, I was talking to him about this idea of like, you know, that some people have this kind of amplifying effect on others. And, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, I see what you're talking about. Because I'm like, you know, it's a contagion of intelligence. Like, everyone is smart and capable. And you know, I went out looking for some research on this so I could give him something that was research-based, evidence-based to look at, well, what does this behavior look like? And there was nothing out there. And I'm like, you know how you have those moments? You're yeah. like,
1: I'm what is wrong with it, people? You know?
0: Yeah, what is wrong with people? And and it wasn't like, gee, I saw a, a business opportunity. I just was like, what is wrong with people? How come the researchers haven't been doing their jobs? Like, Clearly, someone has studied this because it's obvious this is going on that some leaders have a diminishing effect on others and others have what I came to call a multiplying effect. And I was shocked. I went everywhere looking for research and said, well, okay, you know, this is the job that needs to be done. It's not what I thought I was doing. I thought I was doing executive coaching, but let me go and put my researcher hat on and uh, see if I can figure out what's going on.
1: Interesting. So what's We'll give people the cliff note version. So, what were the key things that you learned in the research? And then, as you sort of apply that, I know you've been now coaching on this for years too. So, what what makes people? What are the couple of key things that make them diminishers or multipliers? Because I we know why it's we all want to work for a multiplier, but I, I just I, I think you can almost feel the pain of when you've worked with someone who's a, a diminisher. Who it almost seems counterintuitive why you would have anyone in a leadership role who could make the sum of the parts. Uh, worse than the whole, right?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is painful. I think that's what I've come to realize long after the book came out was how truly painful it is for people to work around diminishing leaders. I think the first thing I found in the research was that these diminishing leaders were getting less than half of people's available intelligence and know-how.
1: And wouldn't it almost by the nature... if your role as a leader is to elevate, and make things, wouldn't it, wouldn't you be better off having no leader than a diminishing leader? Oh my
0: gosh, Robert! Nobody said that. That's the funniest <laughs> thing. Yes, this is true. Like you're better off like leaving these people without a boss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's um, they're doing a lot of damage, and um, they love to hire smart people.
1: Just not as smart as they are. <laughs>
0: Yeah, or even like smarter, but like people don't get to be smart. And like the visual image I always get around these leaders is like they're buying. um, Oh, boy, this I'm going to show my lack of sophistication. What is like those fancy like Yadros and Linux Glass and like all of these Fabergé eggs of talent. And then they're putting them on the shelf Hmm. on display. Like, look at all these smart people who work for me but they're in the background. And anyway, so they, they, they're paying people full price, but underutilizing their talent, which of course is a, is a real waste of the corporate resources, but we don't have to research this to understand like what that does to people when they're working hard, but underutilized, like right. overworked and underutilized or like frustrated and exhausted and and all these things. But that was probably the first thing I found. What I found is it really comes from a difference in mindset where the diminisher leaders seem to assume that people aren't going to figure it out without them.
1: Huh.
0: You know, and Robert, it's not even like uh I'm the smartest one in the room and everyone else has to be stupid for me to look brilliant. It's just when the boss decides that she is needed. Like my team can't do this without me. I'm essential.
1: Well, it's what you were saying before, right? The, the leaders that, that let them go suffer with it a little bit or felt that they were, right, they had to be part of it.
0: Right. And the multiplier holds a very different belief. It's, and it's so simple. It's almost embarrassing how simple it is that, and it's so consistent, and even across cultures, is the belief is that the people who work with me are smart and can figure it out. Which is essentially—it's a growth mindset, right. not about yourself. It's about others. When Carol um, uh, Dweck learned about my research, she was so excited because she's like, "Wow, it's like you've looked at what happens when a leader holds a growth mindset." Which, of course, is not what I intended to do. It's just what was obvious. And and like, think about what happens. You know, you don't need to read a book, or I don't even really need to tell you the difference between what these two leaders do. It's like. If you come into work or even just log on to a Zoom call and hold this assumption that the people you're talking with are smart and are going to figure it out, like, what do you do? What do you not do? And, you know, it turns out you spend, um, you know, a lot of time constructing puzzles for people.
1: Or asking questions, not giving answers.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, how do you set direction? Well, if you think that people aren't going to figure out without you, you tell people what needs to be done or maybe even exactly how it needs to be done. You end up micromanaging and that like strangles people versus the multiplier is going to ask questions, but they're also going to ask really hard questions and big questions and, and questions. They basically like are going to lay out an intellectual challenge. Like, well, how do we do this without any resources and get it done by this time while also juggling this, like they construct these puzzles for people and then they trust that people can solve them. You know, that's one of of many differences.
1: When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help define the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com practical. That's linkedin.com practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Go to Shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. And, and I assume some of those behaviors are, are learned, but are there innate qualities that are that make people more dispositioned to be a multiplier?
0: You know, there there is, and probably the most innate, and it's one that it's sort of at the, like the Holy grail of a lot of these qualities we look for in people is intellectual curiosity. So I did, as part of the research, I had a survey of, I don't know, about 65 items and we tested these leaders, multipliers and diminishers against it. And the thing that's most correlated with multiplier leadership is intellectual curiosity. Hmm. And a lot of people say that, but like, what is that? And for me, what that means is being more interested in what you don't know than what you do know. Like, oh, okay, I know a bunch of stuff, but like what do the people on my team have to teach me? What are these other people? Like, you know, you're asking questions not to humor people, not to practice like active listening, not to do some like faux empowerment. It's like you're (laughs) asking questions, like not trying to win a leadership award. You're asking them because you really – are interested in what people have to say. Yeah. And so that's highly correlated with, um, with multipliers. And then I have to tell you the one thing that's really highly correlated with words, um, the most negatively correlated thing with diminishing leaders is a sense of humor. Hmm. Now, Robert, I have to admit, I put that on the survey in the last minute. And the reason why I did is because I do, well, first of all, I just had a hunch. I'm like, these are not bunny people. These are people who don't laugh at themselves. These are people who take themselves way too seriously, who have to be right and like can't laugh when they make a mistake. They can't laugh when somebody else makes a mistake. They can't be like, "Wow, that was a big up." You know, laugh it off and keep moving." And so I put it on the survey, but I also snuck it on there, kind of as you I just had a.:
1: you had a hunch.
0: Well, I, had a, I also had an axe to grind with my mom.
1: <laughs> I think it's with the past boss.
0: Yeah. No, no, it was with my mom. She didn't know this, but so I was voted, among a couple other things, I was voted class clown of my high school graduating class. Got it. And so I put that on there just like, I don't know, maybe just show my mom, see, like, I, like funny people are okay. You know, like, I don't know. So I threw it on there. It turns out it's the most negatively correlated thing meaning these are people who don't have a sense of humor, who can't laugh. Um, And it's not that these great leaders and multipliers are comedians. They're not like stand-up comics, not at all. It's just that they have a lightheartedness about them.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, they're the type of person you want to probably be around and talk to more. I mean, there are a lot of things that are intuitive about that.
0: Well, and you think about—I'm fascinated by like the relationship between levity and gravitas. And
1: levity and gravitas—that's not a normal correlation. I would have thought of.
0: Well, I think there are principles that I use. Again, this may be all, Robert. This may not come from uh, like an empirical place. This might all be me trying to justify, you know, being a class clown. But yeah. I find um in my my coaching work with executives, I find in my teaching work that the more levity there is in the environment, the greater levels of gravitas we can have. Like the most serious of discussions have to be lighthearted. You know, and so a lot of the work I do is around helping managers see how they're diminishing and sometimes sucking the life out of their people with the very best of intent. Like all of these would be good managers, like kind of, you know what I'm talking about? Like that goody good part of us that just like wants to be like, wants to elevate people and wants to be a people person. And sometimes I find that these leaders are the worst diminishers. Like they have the greatest diminishing effect. And I found that most of the diminishing is accidentally diminishing, like the accidental diminisher. And And really, to address that, you need a lot of levity in the conversation. Like, you have to be able, like, when people, when managers can laugh at themselves, like, oh, yeah, I do that, I do that, oh, boy, that's me. Like, it just invites learning. And yeah, so bringing together, to me, like, the more gravitas you need, the more, the higher stakes a situation is, the more you need lightheartedness. Like, it's relieving pressure, and stress. And again, some of it might be autobiographical. And that, like, remember the, like, C that I landed in, I got thrown into right out of college, like, all these straight A, valedictorian, perfect ACT kind of people, like, part of my job as a manager was to just get people to lighten up. Like, okay, it's gonna be all right. You got that answer wrong. You know what? The game's not over. Like, this will, we will move forward. So I don't know. I think there's um, a tremendous benefit that comes and momentum that comes when we can just laugh at ourselves in situations, not at each other.
1: Well, and also, it also it it shares some sort of humility or vulnerability or willingness to talk about when someone's not approachable, uh, you just, I don't know, removes a whole layer of communication and, and I think an out of the relationship.
0: Yeah. And it's it's like letting people know you're going to be okay.
1: Yeah, we don't take ourselves too seriously here. What was Adam Grant's research? I, I was fascinating. I think in originals was that that wasn't uh, like the average really really high level comedian was like had a birth order of seven or something like that <laughs> because <laughs> they, they they had to find a way to stand out in, in the crowd.
0: Yeah. And there's there's a fair bit of research that's been done. Um, Adrian Gostick and, um, Chester, I don't, I don't know if this is the book he wrote with Chester, but it's, um, called the levity effect. And, you know, if you look at this, there are so many positive outcomes, Um, like engagement goes up, um, productivity goes up, sickness and reported days goes down when there is levity in an environment. And the same is true with the learning environment. Like, you know, if you think about the places where you were learning at your maximum, they're usually places where the professor or some, the teacher has made this environment fun. Because all of our defenses go down, we become vulnerable and and we can't learn unless we're vulnerable and we can't learn. Like for me, learning happens when our expectations are violated, like when the world doesn't work the way we think it works or... Well,
1: that's a good segue to what's going on today, right? During right. COVID-19. I mean, suddenly your business that you run stops working overnight and you better learn quickly uh, how to do something different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so like being lighthearted about this, like, oh wow, this doesn't work the way I thought it was. This is wrong. Like that allows us to move gracefully in these situations where things aren't going as planned.
1: Yeah. And and plan often doesn't go as planned. So that that (laughs) seems to be a a regular thing. Right. You you just you look at that as something where you need to learn, it sounds like not dwelling on the frustration of of where, where it's been or where it was before.
0: Yeah. And the need to let go of control. I mean, I think it's the environment we're in right now where, you know, um,
1: (laughs) you have to let go of control for, for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, like nobody really knows. And I think that's one of the things that is a little bit deceptive um, because we're in an environment of economic uncertainty that's based in disease and, you know, diseases and viruses have models. And so early on in this pandemic, People were starting to say, okay, we have models that are going to predict what's going to happen. And so you start to feel like, okay, we know what's going to happen. Well, I think scientists know what's going to happen in terms of disease and like the spread of that, but there's a whole bunch of other things that we have no precedent for and we don't know. And, you know, anyone who tells you this is what the world is going to look like coming out of this is misleading us. And so it's how do we just Move forward through uncertainty when we don't have models. You know, when we're creating something fresh, it takes a very different mindset.
1: So I know you're always researching, and we talked a little bit before. You're, you're knee deep in some research now for your new book. So can you give us a little little preview on on what you're working on?
0: Oh, Robert, don't get me talking about research because you know I like <laughs> got So please stop me before I, I bore everyone. But in some ways what I'm doing right now is looking at the flip side of multipliers. I never really set out to do that, but you know, multipliers is about what leaders do that allow people to contribute at their fullest. You know, creating environments where people do their best thinking and their best work, and what I'm looking at now are what is the contributor side of this and what is it that the contributor does that enables some people to contribute at their fullest? I think um it was early days with multipliers where somebody was like putting their head around this multipliers idea and they're like oh I get this like I see how these multipliers like get the best of people and then they grow them and they get more and they're like okay this is all making sense to me but like Liz you can't you can't multiply zero <laughs> and you know and I'm like trying to hold back the snickers on this you know because I'm like oh yeah like there's a part of this that is the contributor's responsibility and so I've been looking at how do you contribute at your fullest and very particularly what is it that some people are doing that are allowing them to contribute at their fullest but also people who are extraordinarily valuable to the organization how do they work how do they think and you know i'm looking at what are the most valuable players inside organizations do and what's the mindset behind that and you know what's fun is as part of this research, Robert, I've been looking at what are the things that managers say they value in contributors, and it's a pretty interesting list. Like I've gotten really clear on what is it that managers really want people to do. In fact, I I feel like I'm sitting on this like secret um, like cache of insight <laughs> where I want to pull every college graduate aside and say can I just spend 30 minutes with you before you get started in the workforce? Because I know some things that are going to help you be an absolute superstar. And it's not just intelligence and work ethic. It's all, it's like some secret, like there's a secret code to being successful. And I feel like I've kind of started to uncover that little secret code.
1: But but have the people are good at it. Have they uncovered the code or have they just fallen into the fortunate bucket of having those those qualities or is it something that they've actively discovered?
0: Well, I think the people who end up in this MVP camp, there's probably at the source of what they've figured out early in life is, well, I mean, they're initiative takers for certain, but they have an other orientation. Like, you know, when I'm talking to Bob Shaver about the job that I want to do. Hey, you know, here's the problem I see and here's what I can do for you. Like I'm in a me orientation and the MVP types, they're in another orientation, which is like, what's the job to be done here? Like what's valuable? What's needed? How do I make myself useful? And so they've got this outward orientation, which is interesting. It's also these multiplier leaders have this, Outward orientation, this um, perspective taking that Dan Pink has written a lot about, this ability to see what things look like through somebody
1: else's eyes. I think it was Clayton Christensen or some, did something about jobs to be done. It was like the job of a milkshake or something like that. It Was really fascinating of just really understanding what did that milkshake do for people, right? So it sounds this is not surprising in some ways. To understand they understand the core of what's the most important things that they need to do right
0: absolutely and you know what we found is what you know strong typical capable people tend to do is they tend to do their job and they do their job really well but what really valuable people do is they do the job that needs to be done yeah and it's rarely your job it's it's working in the white space it's saying okay, if everyone does their job, the most important things like fall in the cracks. Like I'm going to go work the cracks on this and I'm going to go do the thing that nobody else wants to do. And I'm going to go do the thing that no one's asking me to do, but it needs to be done. Yeah. And, and they're always on the lookout for this.
1: It, right. It seems in general, I, I believe the Charlie Munger quote where he says, show me the incentive and I'll tell you the behavior. But I agree. I've seen this and and that people tend to, you know, what it is that they're incentivized to do, they do. But there are those extraordinary people who just they know the right thing to do, (laughs) whether it's what they were incentivized to do or not to do. Right. They they understand the most important job to be done. They gravitate towards that. I have seen that. And I agree it's it is is not something that everyone has.
0: And it's. It takes a certain kind of humility to do it. And, you know, like there's a moment I remember, you know, since I'm, I'm managing at Oracle, I have this big job, I'm, you know, head of training and human resource development talent development worldwide. I'm also a mom of three young kids. And am I pregnant with my fourth? I don't know. But like, I'm just barely holding it all together. And there's a woman on my my team and she's really bright. Stanford undergraduate, Harvard MBA, super capable, super bright. She comes to me one day, Hillary Kaplan some more Um, Hi, Hillary. If you end up listening to this, uh, she comes to me and she's, and, you know, I'm running a function where being on top of what's happening in the news is important. Being on top of like the latest ideas in Harvard Business Review and and out in know, business is important. But I'm at the point where I can't read the newspaper. I can't read. And she comes to me and she says, Liz, you know, I've noticed, I know how important it is for you, like, to stay up on things. And I know what your schedule looks like. I know everything that you're managing. She said, "She said, Liz, could I read for you? And, like, like I was slack-jawed at this. And, like, there's a part of me that just wanted to start to cry, going, am I this pathetic that I can't read? And she said, Liz how would it be if I read the Wall Street Journal every day? She said, I'll read HBR every month when it comes out. You know, this is probably the day before before we had dogs. She says, I'll read the New York Times. And she said, and what I'll do is I'll just like sum up what are all the key things and I'll look for the articles that I know you would really care about. And can I just like abstract those for you and give those to you once a week or something? This isn't her job. She hasn't been asked to do this. She's not yeah. my assistant. Like, she, And she just, I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, Hillary, would you do that for me? And she did. And she's like that in everything that she does. So that's just like one of those personal examples of somebody who just always figures out what's missing, what's needed, and how can I be really valuable to my organization and my boss? And it rarely comes from just doing your job. Yeah. That's one of several things that I'm learning.
1: Bill Belichick will be upset. That's his famous, you know, do your job. That's the Patriot way, but that's a good place to wrap. But I do want to ask you one, one last question. uh, I'd like to end with, which is, and this can be singular or repeated, but what is a mistake that you've made uh, in your career that you've learned the most from?
0: Ooh. Ooh. So let me think, what do you want? Um, Do you want like something like shame kind of thing? Do you want like,
1: What do you think people could learn the most from?
0: Well, I'll tell you, you know, I think the biggest mistake, I've made some big mistakes and, you know, I've probably made mistakes that are like measured in hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, more, but I'll, I'll give you the mistake. Um, I wrote a blog for Fortune. They asked me to write something about the biggest mistake I had made in my career. And um, I picked something that happened when I was 17 years old. And for me, it is still like, the most egregious mistake I've ever made. And probably the thing I learned. I think everything I all the way I handle mistakes I learned back at 17. So I had a job in a bridal shop at 17 years. So it was like the bridal shop in the mall. And, and trust me, this was not a high class operation because they hired me at 17 years old to be their evening and weekend seamstress. So I did bridal gown alterations. Now there was a basis for hiring me. Like I took to sewing very early. And so, but anyway, so most of the sewing I did was um, pretty minor, you know, hemming dresses, taking dresses in a couple inches, you know, bridesmaids dresses, wedding gowns. And then there was this one um, bride that came in and she was, her name was Kathy. And I remember this uh, very much. She was like a little size six petite bride and she just absolutely fell in love with this dress that was size 12. And it was the last, you know, sample. It was like a dress shoot that they couldn't order in her size. And so I got given the job of remaking and to turn a size 12 dress into a size six is a like a reconstruction. It's not like, oh, let's take it in a little bit here. You have to like take it apart, completely rebuild this dress. I'm 17 years old and I'm like fearless And I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. So I do it. She comes in for a fitting. It fits perfectly. It's like, like, I did a great job. It was amazing. She's thrilled. We, you know, put it back on the rack and she's gonna come pick it up right before her wedding. And, you know, we'll like press it and have it all ready to go. She comes back in four days before the wedding and they call back to me, like I'm back there, you know, with my sewing machine. And they say, Hey, Kathy's here, is um her dress ready? And I'm like, I haven't pressed it. I hated pressing the dresses. That was a bit of a prima donna. I was like, oh yeah, that's like the clerks can press the dresses. I somehow thought my job was to sew. Like I was doing my job, <laughs> which was to do the alterations and the sewing. And I hadn't done it. And they're like, okay, she needs a dress. And so I'm like, okay, so I got to press it. They're like, Robert, can you see where this is going? Yes. <laughs> it's so painful to even think about. I just didn't like it. I felt like it was Beneath me somehow. So, and I'm still to this day like this. I kind of iron everything on
1: high and I just like go faster, you know. I've made a lot of mistakes turning. Have you done this? Turning a tool or a machine up for efficiency that then ruined whatever, (laughs) whatever I was doing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm like so impatient by nature. And so I'm like, so I turn the iron on, I put the dress down and I like start ironing it right on the bodice. And the bodice is the front part. Like, the chest, like the the essential part of this dress. And I put the iron down even for just a second to start to iron it. And like, it's instantaneous. I realize what's happening. Like I pull that iron back and the whole bodice of the dress has shriveled and like melted. And I'm now looking at a crusty hole in the front of her dress. Like, can you imagine? Like, it's the sickest of feelings. Like, I'm like, Oh, you can't cover up this mistake. Like I don't like, I'm not much of a liar. Like I'm not really a liar at all. Cause I'm like, that takes too much like thinking to be a liar, but I'm like, there's only one way to deal with this. Like there's no story I could spin. Right. And so I just like set the iron down, like caught my breath, walked out to the front and there's Kathy. And I'm like, Kathy, I, I have bad news. Um, I have just melted a hole in the front of your dress. Like I just told her straight out, like it was a radical candor moment. I should probably tell Kim um, about this. And I'm like, Kathy, I've just melted a hole in your dress and trust me, it's it's bad. Like I didn't say, oh, it's a little, like it's it's bad. And I said, but I will fix this for you. And like I still to this day it shocks me that she didn't scream, she didn't like go bridezilla, she didn't like she should have punched
1: me, really. Well that's that's what I was expecting in this story.
0: Yeah, it's four days before her wedding, but like I I love this woman. Like I still I wish like somehow I could figure out where she is in the universe. Kathy, if you hear this, Laura Flumma knows a friend of Kathy was like, Hey man, I got a story about this like 17-year-old girl who melted my dress she was so gracious to me and she just, um, she's like, she knows bad and she was panicky. And she said, can you fix this? And I'm, I said, yes, I can. And I think because I had done this sort of remarkable job, like on the dress to begin with, she's like, okay. And I said, Kathy, I know your wedding's in four days. I said, give me two days, come back in two days and I will have it perfect for you. I'm in high school. And so I'm like going to school and then I'm like, in the afternoon, I'm running around to every store like buying, cause I have to, it's just a one of a kind dress. I have to rebuy the fabric to match the parts. And, and so I like do it and I rebuilt it and she came, you know, two days later and picked it up and it was, it was great. And like somehow I got praised. Like when I should have been punched, she was just like, Liz, this is amazing. You did an amazing job and i think like what i learned was like you know when you screw something up just like own it yeah and don't try to spin a story well the iron is that the
1: cover up is worse than the crime like you know all throughout history
0: yeah and like i could have said well the iron like i was it was a new iron i didn't know i just was like no i just melted a hole in your dress i screwed this up and you know, having spent most of my adult life managing people and being the boss, like it feels good when people own their mistakes, when they just say, you know what, Liz, I screwed this up and let me fix it. I I learned, you know, own it, fix it fast. And, you know, don't be a prima donna because that's what got me into this trouble is like, oh, that's other people's job. I'm just going to do my job.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know that I've screwed something up worse than that in terms of like somebody's life.
1: Hey, if that's the worst, that's a, then then you're in good shape.
0: Well, you're you're a dude too. So like <laughs> a woman might see that situation differently. <laughs> like melting someone's wedding gown two days yeah, before the wedding is a pretty awful thing to
1: do to someone. Maybe she thought it was a sign and she was having questions about the wedding. You never know.
0: Oh, I don't know. But yeah, and I've made a bunch of other mistakes and, you know, mistakes of judgment and, uh, but you know, you try to just own them.
1: All right. Well, Liz, where can people learn more about your work and your writing?
0: Oh, well, let me see. Um, my work, well, there's the Wiseman group.com, which is our firm, um, which is all about creating great places to work and really just honestly ridding the world of bad bosses is what we're all about. And um, Or multipliersbooks.com. Let me see rookiesmarts.com for... Any information on those books, and I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm at Liz Wiseman.
1: All right, people will find you. That sounds like it's not it's not a challenge. Well, Liz, thanks for coming in today and sharing your story with us. Um, you've clearly developed a passion for helping others understand uh, how to make the people around them better.
0: Well, it's my pleasure, and thanks for the work that you do. Like, I just love this idea of like our job as leaders is to elevate.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, otherwise, what are we here for? Uh, not to, uh, now I can forget to, what's the opposite of the multiplier, the uh, to
0: diminish. diminisher?
1: Yeah. Diminishers would not be a great book. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you again. Um, to our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Liz and her work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. And uh, until next time, keep elevating.